Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Ann Wolf on the show, the Nevada Museum of Art's chief curator and associate director to discuss the new exhibition, Sagebrush and Solitude, Maynard Dixon in Nevada, which will be on display at the Nevada Museum of Art from March 2nd to July 28th, 2024, and is the first comprehensive exhibition to document Dixon's early wanderings and extended visits to Nevada and the Eastern Sierra. The exhibition is accompanied by the publication of a major 250-plus page book co-published by Rizzoli and Electra in New York in the Nevada Museum of Art, titled Sagebrush and Solitude, Maynard Dixon in Nevada, which was edited by Ann Wolf, our guest today. Please enjoy our conversation. Maynard Dixon was born in the Central Valley of California in the 1870s. What was it like in the Central Valley then? Well, Maynard Dixon was born in 18 in the ranching community of Fresno, which was in the Central Valley, San Joaquin Valley, and undergoing, I would say, a time of transition. The Central Valley, Fresno in particular, was shifting and becoming more of a a lively urban center with sort of some Victorian influence. So if you look at old pictures of Fresno at the time, you'll see large buildings in the downtown area. But then, of course, this this scene was surrounded by open ranch land and still sort of this spirit of ranching community. And so I think in many ways, Maynard Dixon is very influenced by both of these kind of colliding cultures, right? This progressive sophistication that's coming into a ranching community, as well as this, you know, this this ranch life and cowboy life that obviously influence him. Yeah. And it seems to summarize well the differences between his parents too. Can you talk about his parents and their particular influence and maybe spend a moment to talk about his family's relationship to the Confederate South? Sure. Maynard Dixon's father was from the South and was, a I don't know exactly his rank, but a general of sorts or involved in the Confederate um, army. His mother um, was more of a sophisticated, educated woman, uh, literate with ties to the San Francisco Bay Area. And she, I think, really nurtured and encouraged his love uh, interest in literature and poetry, other cultures. And it was his mother that um, moved the family to the, the Bay Area uh, when Maynard Dixon expressed an interest in, in art and, and studying where he eventually um, enrolled at the California School of Design. And what role did Arthur Matthews have on his development as an artist? Well, Arthur Matthews was active um, in the um, San Francisco Bay Area at the time. He was um, a proponent of the arts and crafts movement. He was a tonalist painter. <clears throat> Excuse me. His work, I would say, you know, really embraced and perpetuated that idea of California as a Arcadian place of Arcadian beauty and inspired by sort of this Mediterranean climate and all of the classical literature. Did he have a direct influence on Dixon? I can't say for sure, but I would say that Dixon, in the same way that Matthews loved California and created these realistic but fantasy scenes of this Arcadian mythical place, Dixon in many ways did the same for the American Southwest. So Dixon really chose his home in San Francisco. That was his home base. His studio was there. But his travels into the West, both Nevada and the American Southwest, allowed him to enter into these other worlds and these other cultures in the same way that Matthews did. 
Before we move forward, can you just, because it's going to come up again, can you give us a quick kind of definition of what tonalism is? It's a style of painting that tends to be a little bit more on the moody side, darker, really a more of a monochromatic palette, emphasizing sort of the, a limited tonal range in one's artwork. Okay. And a little bit later on his life, he, he took a trip through the Southwest, specifically Arizona and Mexico that was influential in it. When I was, when I was learning about kind of his trips throughout the area and discovering really the beauty of the desert of that particular region, I was kind of reminded of some of the scenes in that movie that came out last year, Oppenheimer, where Robert J. Oppenheimer goes off into the desert and rides horses and is drawn to this particular place for different reasons. Can you talk about his initial exploration of the desert? Well, I think we have to take a look at Dixon's mentor, Charles Lummis, and the role that he played in Dixon's development, his encouragement to travel to the American Southwest and those regions. You know, this is a period in time Lummis was a, well, a man of many talents, but among them a journalist, and he would work with Dixon to place his illustrations in publications and such. He was also interested in indigenous cultures. And at the time, before Dixon did so, Lummis wrote a book called A Tramp Across the Continent, where he, on foot, set out from Ohio to California to experience this, you know, great land of America. He then encourages Dixon, who Dixon's now, by now, living in San Francisco, has his studio settled there. Dixon, uh, San Francisco is a very busy place. Uh, Lummis encourages Dixon, as we all know, to go east to experience the west. And by that, I suppose we mean to go to the eastern states, to Nevada, to the southwest, to experience what they would have considered to be the old west, the vanishing west. I would say a place of nostalgia and a, sort of a romanticized west. And so Dixon is listening to his mentor when he's thinking about traveling, traveling east beyond California's borders. Do you think that, you know, like all artists, they have to make ends meet. Do you think Dixon's time as an illustrator for various magazines when he was living in San Francisco made him a better artist or was it more about just making enough money to get by? At the age of 16, Dixon sent a couple of his sketchbooks to Remington, the artist Remington, and he wrote back to him and said that draw from nature, young man, continue to draw from nature or something of that sort. And so, you know, this is exactly what Dixon did in his 1901 trip to Nevada, that he set off on horseback with his fellow artist, Edward Boreen, all through the Northern Great Basin, up through Carson City, through Reno, Nevada, up to Northern California, Plumas, Plumas County, Modoc County, County, all the way through Southern Oregon and Idaho. And that skitchip, that trip in particular, excuse me, that trip in particular was primarily focused on sketching cowboy life and ranch life at a number of ranches, remote ranches where they stayed and pitched their tents and lived this sort of cowboy life. And it's those sketches and drawings and illustrations all done, you know, quick study of many times in the field that became the basis for many of his illustrations in these publications like Harper's Weekly, some that were sold to the Visalia Stock and Cattle Company for their covers, and so those sketches were really a, an important foundation for a lot of his work. And you can see in many of his paintings that he then continues into, on in the studio and completes in the studio, those sketches and those drawings and those ideas working their way into his more finished studio paintings. How did Dixon meet Dorothea Lange and how did their relationship influence his art? 
Maynard Dixon met Dorothea Lang in San Francisco. They operated in the same social circles and art circles. When Dixon was working in San Francisco, he was a noticeable artist. He was an accomplished artist. He would walk on the street in front of his Montgomery Street studio wearing, you know, a wide brim cowboy hat, Stetson and black cowboy boots and oftentimes a black suit jacket. So he was introduced to Dorothea Lang by their mutual friend, uh, Imogene Cunningham, who was also a photographer like Dorothea. And they were married in San Francisco. And Dorothea becomes a part of uh, Dixon's life, as well as many of his excursions to Nevada. So she accompanies him on many of those trips. But there's really, I think, a great reference that Dorothea makes uh, about Dixon and the time uh, that he was often in Nevada and, and the West. Um, she recalled that he was always going for a month or just six weeks, but he would never come back inside of four months. His, and she would go on to say his trips were practically disappearances as far as San Francisco life was concerned. He was just either there or he was gone. And I think that, uh, I think the dedication of both of them to their craft, she being a photographer, he being a painter, that passion, her willingness at the time to just let him disappear into the desert, I think really defines a, a lot of, you know, uh, the relationship that they had with each other. I have read that there was criticism that some of her art was kind of put in the back seat to support him and his particular artistic pursuits. Do you think there's any merit in that criticism of the relationship's effect on Dorothea's artwork? I'm not going to venture into that in detail, except to say that, you know, I can truly imagine the life of a very active photographer, Dorothea, a very active painter, Maynard Dixon. Uh, they both have, they have two young boys together. Um, they are trying to balance that family life and that need for uh, solitude and isolation. Nevada, in many ways, offers that solitude um, to uh, Maynard Dixon, and they frequently travel uh, to Carson City, to Fallen Leaf Lake near Lake Tahoe with their two young boys, their two active and rambunctious boys. They also take them to the Eastern Sierra. And so all I can say is that I can imagine it was, would be quite a family life a balance to strike with that life of an artist for both of them. Yeah, I, I enjoyed some of the intimate pictures that uh, she took of the family life, particularly the boys as well. So Maynard's art kind of takes a slight turn, or I guess maybe a major turn during the Great Depression, where he's focused on a new form or a new type of art with new focuses around some of the issues going on during the Great Depression. Can you talk about that turn? Sure. I will speak specifically to our focus on his work made in Nevada. But, you know, Dixon is greatly troubled by what he sees during the Great Depression, the plight of workers, um, workers' conditions, uh, much like his wife, Dorothea Lang, is. And we see that in her photographs as well. In, in 1934, Dixon takes a commission with the PWAP, the Public Works Administration, to, to paint the construction of the Boulder Dam, now known as the Hoover Dam in southern Nevada. He travels to Southern Nevada. He's bunked up with um, a worker's family, coincidentally or not coincidentally. Dorothea's brother, Martin Lang, is also employed as a worker on the dam at the time. And what he sees there troubles him greatly. Working conditions are very dangerous. He sees hospitals that are full of people working during the Great Depression who've been injured working on the dam. And the paintings that he makes at the dam are somewhat anti-heroic. 
lots of tired laborers, forlorn workers. I think that they're filled with a pessimism and, you know, again, this sort of anti-heroic, anti-heroicism during that time. And we really see that not only in the Boulder Dam paintings, but again, in a number of other series of paintings that Dixon does of, you know, the, the, the isolated or forlorn worker sitting on the side of the street, walking lonely in the desert. One of Maynard Dixon's prominent clients was Anita Baldwin. And Anita Baldwin was the um, daughter of Comstock Baron E.J. Lucky Baldwin, who made his money on Nevada's Comstock mining silver and gold. Anita often would purchase paintings directly from Dixon's studio in San Francisco, and then eventually commissioned him to paint the murals in Dixon's studio. I'm sorry, in her studio. And then Baldwin eventually commissioned Dixon to paint the murals in her Arcadia, California home. The relationship between Dixon and Baldwin does not end there. Obviously, they have a relationship that continues on. She continues to buy his work. But Baldwin also owned a 2,000-acre estate at Fallen Leaf Lake near South Lake Tahoe. And she invited Dixon and Lang in 1932 to visit Fallen Leaf Lake, where they stayed for the summer and uh, painted numerous canvases. Dixon painted throughout that season, although he never painted Lake Tahoe specifically. He often would hike up to the tree line above Fallen Leaf Lake, sort of searching for, again, some sort of solitude. And he would paint these solitary trees above the tree line with this, with the sky sort of expanding beyond them. And I would say that this sort of points towards his interest in modernism, obviously not looking for that traditional forest landscape or tree landscape, but looking to almost paint these portrait uh, trees as though they're portraits of people against a, an empty backdrop. And so, you know, that time at Fallen Leaf Lake, he returns again to Fallen Leaf Lake. He then also illustrates some of the materials for the Fallen Leaf Lake resort that she owns. And so that's a really important, I would say, relationship for Dixon throughout his lifetime. Hmm. I want to get into some thematic questions now, kind of broader questions about his art. When I think about learning about art history and I think about Impressionism, the American West isn't the first thing that comes to mind. I tend to think about parks in Paris or Impressionists in Europe. Uh, can you talk about uh, Impressionism and Western art and how those two intersect? Western art. Well, when I think of Impressionism in the West, I tend to think of more coastal regions, you know, what was happening among the Impressionists in Laguna Beach, Southern California, up in Oakland, California with the Society of Six, you know, where we see that California interpretation of French Impressionism, this you know, desire to capture the light and the fleeting movement of the, the of the landscape in these canvases. Dixon, I would say, was not an Impressionist. He would, in his paintings specifically of Nevada, try to distill them down to form and color and line and the geomet underlying geometries of the landscape. It's those qualities that we come now to define as modernism or an emerging modernism. In many ways, you know, Dixon's paintings are very rooted in reality and what he sees and truthfulness but they also, you know, again, are distilled down to some of those basic formal principles that we know modernism tends to emphasize. And so in some of his paintings, probably his one of his best known paintings made in Nevada, which is also 
sort of iconic in many ways of the American West. It's called Wild Horses of Nevada. We see this group of wild horses galloping across the landscape in what has become a very structured sort of geometric um, composition um, with movement indicated by, you know, these diagonal lines and just the distillation of the mountains and the desert and the alkali flat just simplified down to just this pure plane of color. And so that's very different, obviously, than what the Impressionist painters were doing and the plein air painters were doing, which was filling those canvases with all that paint and trying to capture light and shadow and the changing environment in a very different way. Yeah, it seems, at least my reading, that Dixon was rejecting in a lot of ways the romanticism of some of his, his predecessors, Albert Bierstadt, you know, as like an example. And what would you, how would you say, if you were to define how he viewed the West, Nevada being central, but, you know, the the, the region, what, you know, what impressions would people have of the West just by looking at his art? 19th century painters like Bierstadt and William Keith um, sought a different type of realism in their work. You know, oftentimes it was said that their paintings reached for the sublime, right? That the beauty of nature was even greater than it was in real life. Dixon, I think, he longed for something else. He longed for a truthfulness in art, but it was also, you know, it had a lot to do with the particular settings and scenes and landscapes that he sought out as how that how they defined his vision of what the Old West might have been. And I think Dixon is a very complicated figure for that reason, because obviously in his paintings, he leaves out a lot of the complicated histories of what the West is. You know, he's painting um, Native American people as these oftentimes sort of pure spiritual figures that exist outside of history. You know, you kind of fail to recognize all of the, the complex collisions between indigenous cultures and frontier settler colonialism that happens and you end up with these paintings by Dixon that are very romanticized portrayals of a culture. He's seeking, you know, small towns and looking at them through this sort of nostalgic lens where we're painting like the ruins of Chinatown in Carson City, Nevada, that, you know, had been burned to the ground multiple times. And so we're seeing again, that history through this lens. And he's He's defining the Old West as this, you know, sort of a romantic place through this lens of nostalgia, which is obviously very different than what Bierstadt and some of the other painters were doing. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of two sides of a similar coin. I mean, I, I'm, when you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, Edward Said's book, uh, Orientalism, and I'm thinking about the two different lenses, how to look look at people, quote unquote, from the Orient was, you know, there's a kind of an element of violence, but then there's also an element of like, mysticism and magic in some ways. And it seems like he was maybe leaning into the latter. And I know he was really interested in kind of the more spiritual practices of indigenous groups. Is there is there a particular artwork by Dixon, uh, an indigenous person that kind of exemplifies what you're talking about, a piece that you would point to? Well, you know, I want to emphasize that Maynard Dixon's art was intended for an Anglo audience. And that's important to consider at the time. And so at, the, at that moment in the 1920s and the 30s, of course, we see this, you know, rise in interest in sort of the exoticization, so to speak, of the other, other cultures, whether it's Mexican-American cultures or Native American cultures. 
And, you know, Dixon is immersing himself in the American Southwest in these cultures, but really at arm's length, right? So he's choosing to paint what he wants to paint. He may be simplifying those forms, uh, those figures, those ceremonies, those religious experiences that he's witnessing. What I think is really interesting, um, and I'm not going to speak to specific paintings of the American Southwest, which would be New Mexico, Arizona, etc. But when he comes to Nevada, we only know of one, maybe two paintings of Native American cultures, Native, Native American people. And they're very different than what we see in the American Southwest. The painting that he makes in Nevada of a group of Washoe women is of a small group of, uh, I believe, four or five women just seated on the ground, gathering together in sort of this quiet, mo quiet moment of conversation. The spirit of that painting is very different than I would say the, the presentation of the different you know, Native American representations we see coming out of the American Southwest. And I think that that really points to a lot of the work that he's making in Nevada. His experiences in Nevada are far more individual. They're rooted in sort of this solitude that he was seeking, this escape that he was seeking when he visited Nevada. And I have to say, it's, it's very similar to what many Californians still seek today as they, you know, let's get out of the state, let's drive across the Sierra, let's experience that sort of solitude that the open alkali flats and the Great Basin offer to us. Many great artists have sought to capture aspects or mood of the desert space. How, how would you capture for us how Dixon sees the desert? We talked about the West, but uh, I want to talk about the desert specifically. Uh, there's just so many pieces. I, I mean, just kind of going through a lot of his published pieces, I'm just struck by just the beautiful diversity that I see in his in his pictures of desert landscape in the West. When I think of Dixon and how he attempts to create sort of the mood of the desert, I really have to give credit to a good friend of mine and supporter, Peter Stremmel here, who's been involved with the Coeur d'Alene Art Auction a long time. And he said to me just recently, you know, Maynard Dixon really is to the desert what Edward Hopper was to the city. Mm -hmm. And I think that really sums it up. Dixon had an ethos about him, uh, searching, seeking of kind of a, a spiritual experience. That's what he was seeking in the desert. Uh, it's something that you, as an artist, I think really it's something that artists seek out, sort of that individual connection to a landscape and a place. And so in Dixon's paintings, you know, they're not just plein air paintings that he's made on site in the desert. He has a way of distinctly conveying the mood of a storm, the storm clouds crossing across, crossing, crossing the sky or, or, you know, the purple shadows coming across the mountain range or in the case of his time in the eastern Sierra down near Lone Pine, just being able to depict sort of the majesty and monumentality of the Inyo range or some of the mountain ranges down there. Let's talk about the end of his life. He spent his final few years in, in the Mount Carmel region, which I just know is close to Zion. And obviously someone with his interests and abilities, it may, would make perfect sense why you'd want to be in that area. It's some of the most beautiful desert landscape in the world. I guess my question is, is how... He was so prolific, even even until the very end as he was dealing with illness. So what do you attribute that to, his prolific abilities as an artist to continue to produce, which is not always the case with artists that they can produce even through 
old age and illness. You know, Dixon and Edith Hamlin, his third wife, did settle in Tucson, Arizona. But I like to remind people that they did consider Carson City, Nevada. Um, that's where he wanted to be. He And that's where they visited when they married and considered Carson City to as a possible home. I think Carson City is an interesting place, actually, because not only does he file for divorce from Dorothea Lang in Carson City and spends the last, you know, family vacation together with their two boys there in Carson City, taking an apartment on the historic Bliss Mansion in the middle of town. He also then returns there not long later with Edith Hamlin, where they marry in Carson City, and again, consider that as a, as a possible home. The the, the locales around Northern California, Lake Tahoe, Fallen Leaf Lake, Carson City, again, forgetting the border, they're all right there together, are always inspiring to Dixon. He continues to paint. He continues to paint even when he falls ill and Edith Hamill has to you know, put him into the car and drive him down to Southern California to try to find medical help through a, a doctor friend of theirs. And yet he continues to paint. And I think, you know, that's the life of an artist, right? That's the life of a passionate painter. Even in one's failing health, you continue continue to paint. And so, yes, they do eventually settle in Tucson, Arizona. But, you know, as Donald Haggerty has pointed out, what do they plant in the middle of their courtyard there, which is a cottonwood tree, which is that tree that's so iconic of the Nevada desert and uh, the places that Dixon would travel. I think within... Dixon's time in Nevada, he makes over 40 canvases of the, the Fremont Cottonwood. And so he takes a part of him, a part of Nevada, a part of the West with him when he moves to Tucson. Where would you situate Maynard Dixon in the history of Western art? And we could talk about Nevada artists as well and, and California artists. Where, where, where should we see him in terms of in his legacy, but also in the way that he influenced people that came after him. Well, Maynard Dixon, you know, he chose to make his home and his studio and his base in San Francisco. So I suppose California can claim him as a California artist, but we think, will share him. We will share him. We can, I, he, There's enough to go around, I think. Dixon was obviously an artist of the American West. And when it comes to Nevada specifically, you know, Dixon is credited. I credit Dixon with introducing sort of the tenets of modernism to the state. And he's followed by many artists from the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1920s and the 1930s who are leaving California for short periods, leaving the Bay Area in search of new subject matter, new scenery. And he really leads the way, not only in the selection of his destinations, being Nevada and the Southwest, but also in the experiments, experimental modernism that he's moving forward. Obviously, he's not, you know, obviously Dixon does not push modernism to the extreme as, you know, the genre continues to evolve, evolve. But he's absolutely an important contributor to sort of those those first modernist influences in the American West and Nevada specifically. Okay, let's let's talk about the exhibition at the Nevada Museum of Art. I, I haven't been yet. I'm very excited to come. I, I just want to hear a little bit about the impetus for putting on this exhibition, some highlights, and then what should people expect when they show up? Well, the exhibition that we have organized is called Sagebrush and Solitude, Maynard Dixon in Nevada. Dixon, obviously well-known as a foremost painter of the American West, but until now his work 
and time spent in Great Basin and specifically Nevada and the Eastern Sierra has somewhat been overlooked. So we have assembled an exhibition of about 150 objects specifically focused on Nevada, the Eastern Sierra, Lone Pine, Southern Oregon, as well as his time at Fallen Leaf Lake. And we've assembled a team to write about those paintings, including Donald Haggerty, who you could not undertake an exhibition on Dixon without Don's support, as well as John Ott from James Madison University, who writes on Dixon's Boulder Dam suite of paintings from 1934, and Ann Kennison from the University of Nevada, Reno, who's written on Dixon's poetry specifically and the poetry that he wrote in Nevada. So it's a major exhibition that will hopefully shed new light on a, an important chapter of Dixon's career that's often been um, overshadowed by his time in the Southwest and elsewhere. Well, I'm glad that you brought up his poetry because I didn't have a chance to really uh, look through it. What what kind of poetry did Dixon produce? And what is, are there certain influences that he brings in it from different poets around the West? Yeah, so Dixon Dixon was a poet, and often when he would set up camp among the aspen trees and cottonwood groves of Nevada, he would at night pen lines of poetry beside his campfire. These were wide-ranging. He didn't just write poetry in Nevada. He wrote it wherever he was. And this, again, was right on the verge of modernism, right? So his poetry, at least by some, has been compared to what we might know today as cowboy poetry, sort of in this ballad form based on representational point of view, what he was seeing in the landscape, what he was experiencing, kind of pushing towards modernism, but perhaps not quite, not quite getting there. And so again, emphasizing sort of that, you know, unspoiled Western landscape, the old West. And, but really I would say sort of a, a very personalized experience and filled with not just his impressions of the landscape, but connecting those to his personal life as well. Wonderful. We always close in the same place. What are a few books you'd recommend to listeners uh, based on the, some of the subjects we were talking about or others related to today's conversation? Well, I would obviously like to recommend the major book that we've published with Rizzoli Electa. It's a 288-page book dedicated to Maynard Dixon in Nevada with all of the scholars that I've just mentioned. It's a, a, a great publication with a lot of new scholarship and new information. I think, and not to only talk about publications from the Nevada Museum of Art, but we published in 2015, a major book called Tahoe, A Visual History. And Maynard Dixon's works are included in that publication, but that was a 400 page book looking at the artists since from Native American times contemporary Native American artists as well, up to contemporary art artists who've looked at the region surrounding the Donner, Donner Pass and Lake Tahoe. And again, a part of our mission here at the museum is to tell those untold stories of the West, to look at those regions and those places that are often overlooked and to define new chapters in the art history of the American West. Wonderful. And what is, to close, what is the time frame for the exhibition? How long will it be going on? The exhibition will run from March 2nd to July 28th of 2024. I am so excited to come see it. And thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me today. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time. Thank you.